Welcome to the Big Break Software Podcast. We'll be talking with software startup founders, software coaches, and consultants, and how they found their own software success. And now, let's get started with the show. Hi, everyone. This is Jordy Wardman here, host of the Big Break Software Podcast, where I talk to top leaders in the software field like Seth Godin, Andrew Warner of Mixergy, and many more. This is a show where we talk to proven founders about their zero to 30,000 MRR journey and beyond. Today's episode is brought to you by OneStop.fm. We have 45 developers waiting to take your idea to fruition. If you want a reliable full-stack development team with top talent, they cost half as much as in-house developers. And you know you can trust your SaaS or mobile app with us. We'll give you the first 30 days no risk, and we guarantee being on time and on budget, or we finish the project at no extra cost. Contact us at onestop.fm. Let's talk about your SaaS project today. Today on the Big Break Software Podcast, we have Akil Jabber. Akil is the founder and CEO of Horizon Capital, a growth and private equity firm that invests in 500 to 5 million AR SaaS companies. Akil will tell us what he looks for when making his investments, what to include or not include in your SaaS pitch, what types of valuations you can expect from your SaaS, and where he gets his deal flow, and his own experience growing SaaS companies. How are you today, Akil? I'm good. I'm good, Gordy. Uh, thank you so much for me having me on today. I'm excited to be on. Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you. A little bit of a different show, but totally relevant for our audience. A lot of the SaaS founders that I speak with are uh, interested eventually in selling their SaaS. So why don't you just tell us a bit about Harizen, how you sort of you know position yourself differently from other angels and VC firms that are out there? Yeah, sounds good. So at Horizon Capital, we only work with specifically B2B SaaS companies. So this is a kind of a different path of entrepreneurship, right? A lot of people think the only way to maybe grow or start a business, you know, they're, they're stuck in that idea phase of like, what should I do? How do I build a product? What, you know, focus should I have? There's a lot of risk in building your own company. And then it takes a lot of time to building kind of product market fit, right? You probably see that like typically until you're at least, you know, a million in ARR, you don't really have product market fit. You're still trying to validate if there's market demand. You're still trying to build your MVP. There's a lot of kind of unknowns that happen, right, in the first couple of years of building a startup. So we do at Horizon Capitals. We come in a little bit later stage, you know, when you're, you've typically found product market fit, you know, 500K MRR up to 5 million. So before you really become, you know, a leader in the space. And then we, we look to do two things. Either we come in and do acquisition. So there's a lot of other players out there doing that where they're like private equity firms will say, look, we're going to acquire your company. We're going to take majority stake. So that could be, you know, anywhere from 51% uh, controlling stake up to 100%. And then we take mm -hmm. over the company. We operate it. We know, you know, apply our growth playbook and then we continue to accelerate their growth. And typically, you know, we'll see people who come to us at different stages of their uh, of their investor or their, their startup journey. Like if you're looking to sell your company, there's kind of a couple of reasons why you're looking at it. One is, you know, this is usually like five, six, seven years out after you've built your company, you've taken it to a certain stage of your of your of the growth and then you're kind of burnt out. So we see that a lot where founders are like, look, I've been working on this for years. I've been grinding it in and day in, day out. And I'm just I'm tired. I want to move on to something else like this was, you know, a fun journey it was my first time as an entrepreneur. But I'm ready to move mm -hmm. on to something else. This is my first. I want to exit, get you know, cash out of this, and you know, move on to another project. So that's, that's fine. That's where they come to us and say, "Look, we're happy to take over." Uh, the second scenario is, you know, typically the the founder is really good at building product, and those are product led mm -hmm. founders where they've done a good job in building a great product. They've grown organically. They've grown through you know one or two different channels of growth, but they've done almost zero marketing. 
and they say, mm-hmm. look, like, you know, we don't, we don't know. We haven't done any market. But we've grown to a certain point, And, you know, this is our expertise where we come in. That's our playbook. We can apply and really accelerate growth on that side. So we become your partner on, on the growth side. And then the, the final piece is, you know, you have those serial entrepreneurs who just get bored. They, they want to work on something else. They find a new project that's just doing better or they just enjoy it more. And I think that happens a lot where we, you know, shiny object syndrome as an entrepreneur, you find something, you know, more enjoyable and you just want to, you know, you know, take this project, give it on to somebody else and move on. And then the other side of the business, I guess, you know, that was the acquisition side. The other piece, mm-hmm. what makes us really different is, you know, we're, we're operators, right? Like a lot of PE firms, they, they'll just come in with cash. They're financial mm-hmm. backers. They're going to give you the cash. Then they're, they're just going to stand back and let you operate. We actually come in and we're very hands-on. So if you're a partner who, you know, somebody who's built a decent enough product, they, they know they have some revenue. They've shown that there's a little bit, you know, uh, demand in the market. Perfect. We'll come in, look at your business, look at what we can do, apply our expertise and come in for, for a minority stake. So that's we come in as like growth equity partners. We'll, we'll mm-hmm. come in for not only putting, you know, our time in the game or putting our skin, you know, skin in the game with, with our time and money and our expertise. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a win-win scenario where, you know, together we'll accelerate the company. And then, you know, if we take it to the next stage, we can either help you raise, you know, that, that next round or, or help you sell to even a strategic partner, which I think could be more valuable for a lot of founders. Okay. That sounds great. There's quite a lot of information there. Can you give us a bit of the backstory? So what makes you what makes you an authority in in growing and marketing for SaaS? What's your sort of background? I gather you must have been a founder yourself or been involved in some startups. Sure. Um, can you tell us a bit of that story? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So kind of quick background. I'm actually a petroleum engineer, so I'm not even you know, a product or technical a person. I'm not a marketer either, but I turned entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually worked in the white collar industry for several years and I made that kind of full-time leap to entrepreneurship almost seven years ago. I mean, even in a university, well, well, university is when I actually launched my first business at the time. It was a recruitment firm. So I was actually hiring tech talent for startups all, all around the world, including, you know, Berlin. Mm-hmm. At the time, my passion was really around how to increase my cash returns from the money I was making to replace my income. So at that time, I started investing in the stock market. I think, you know, before I was, you know, 17 years old, you know, but that's when I learned about some of the hard mistakes of investing. I quickly learned, you know, after a few years was that, A, you don't have control over so many factors when trying to pick stocks like you're trying to pick you know business can be affected by you know turmoil and news and the other side of the world and you know your, your stock value can plummet you know 50 percent overnight the second thing is when you're competing in a space with guys who you know for example here in this case guys on wall street they have a lot more sophisticated technology and they have a lot more experience than trying to pick better deals to invest in so you're going up against people who literally live breathe this every single day you know and this is what their passion is from from day and night so this is something you're trying to do on the side as a part-time hobby. And then, you're, you know, this is somebody who, who does this on a full-time basis. You know, your chances are a lot lower. You know, it's like trying to play golf against Tiger Woods when you're just starting off, right? And it just, it just doesn't You're happen. talking about investing in the market, investing in, the essentially. Market. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Right? So that's when I actually came across a book called Cashflow Quadrant by, by Robert Kiyosaki. Maybe you've heard about it. And I learned about... Yeah, you know, of course. In, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's what yeah. I learned, you know, investing in cash-generating assets, controlling your yeah. own income time and leveraging, you know, debt effectively. So I used some of that cash, invested in some real estate in Canada. I uh, still have some of mm-hmm. those. So, you know, bought one and the second one. And then this is me at, I think, you know, 24, 25 years old. I felt like this is just way too slow for me, right? I, I'm impatient. Mm-hmm. I need results fast. You know, real estate is just too slow as well. You know, I, I still think real estate is still good if people are looking to invest in that. Even, you know, founders always looking to diversify their cash. But I think of it more of like mm-hmm. a long-term strategy, maybe, you know, 20 years return. So I invested yeah. in a physical business. I, you know, at that time, I have a physical actual franchise gym in Canada. But that's what I learned about, you know, recurring revenue. What is, you know, local marketing, the LTV churn, uh, because you have these different contracts and ACVs. But the problem with that model is that you're still limitation. There's a limitation to that model, right? You're physically dependent. It's super expensive to scale, right? Every single time you want to uh, expand to another location, you're, you know, you're spending 500K to a million dollars every time. But, but it's still good, mm-hmm. you know, five to 10 years return. 
So that's when I learned about you know digital and online businesses. You know, I, I first bought my first online business from uh, Empire Flippers. I don't know if you've heard about them. They're yeah. a broker, yeah, right? So, sure. so they, mm-hmm. I think it was an affiliate website at the time for less than I think fifty thousand dollars, and that's where I was hooked. So that's where I really started, you know, learning about CRO, SEO, you know, hiring different you know team members remotely, affiliate marketing, email marketing, all that good stuff. And that's around the time when I when I quit my job. You know, I was focusing on that. I actually joined a startup at that time. It was a as a CEO, COO, sorry, mm-hmm. as their CEO. So I worked with a great CEO who had a lot of success in previous companies. He was a hustler and had a great vision for his product. But I'll, I'll share a quick mistake here. I think that's maybe valuable for your listeners. And maybe, you know, you, you probably see this a lot is that what happened was he actually outsourced his entire project, the tech side of it to India without mm-hmm. knowing a first thing about code, structure, architect. And he mm-hmm. made that decision, I would say primarily probably on cost. And you probably, you mm-hmm. know, have that conversation a lot, right? Where people are shopping around looking for building the product, they're just thinking cost is the thing, but there's so much more behind it. Yeah. Right. And he looked at some firms in Canada, I think, but I think he got a quote for a third of the cost. So he's like, he didn't even consider the rest of it. But I think from mm-hmm. building a SaaS and even from, especially from an investor's perspective, and I think this is where the company kind of failed was, I think you should consider having a CTO or at least uh, as a partner or, or find like that technical partner who you can include and say, this person is committed to the long term of this project. Then they have working with, or whether it's working with an outsourcing agency, and then they're able to, you know, follow that right blueprint and map out the project specs from that vision. So just, just a kind of quick, you know, a side story there. You're essentially you're saying that what most SaaS should have, if the, if it's not a technical founder, they should have a technical co-founder vested in the in the business. And do you, what do you consider vested? Do you think they should have some equity, or are you okay if they've just been working with this team for for like a long time? So I think working for a long time, but they have to know, like even the founder needs to understand what, what the, the people are doing, right? Because it's, it's, it's very hard to find agencies reliable who know what they're doing, who write quality code. So how can, you know, as let's say that agency, you know, shuts up, shuts down overnight, then what happens? Like the company's at risk, right? Whereas if you have somebody, mm-hmm. you know, vested, maybe that's equity, I would say, at least at the minimum, maybe they have some skin in the game, they're invested in it. You know, they have that kind of uh, commitment and responsibility to want to actually build this for the long term. Because at the end of the day, that's what investors are looking at. This is an investment that they know is not going to pay back for the next, you know, at least 10 years or plus when you, you know, you IPO or you exit. So, mm-hmm. you know, if you're changing agencies every, every couple of years, Right. I think that becomes kind of an issue when you don't have somebody who has the fundamental knowledge of what's been going on behind the scenes at all times. So as long as you have that one person who's kind of the who knows what's happening at all times and, and can kind of play, mm-hmm. you know, map it out for, for anybody who comes in and knows the code framework of what's what's being worked on. I think that's probably more important. OK. Yeah. OK. That makes sense. Yeah. OK. So what, what sort of time period was this that you bought your first you bought your off of Empire Flippers? So this was in, I think, 2015. So I think this was always, yeah, about, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like uh, six, seven years ago. Six, seven years ago, yeah. And then, yeah. And then uh, you know, okay. I, I left that startup. And then at that time, I actually joined a firm called Wired Investors. So they were doing acquisitions, kind of similar to what I, w- I was doing, but a lot bigger scale. So they're doing, you know, seven-figure acquisitions, help them raise some capital for some of the deals they're doing. And then they were doing a lot of content sites, affiliate, uh, you know, content, productized service, and then obviously SaaS. I actually took mm-hmm. on a role of being the CEO of a company then called $99 Social. Within five months of that acquisition, I was actually able to double the, the earnings of that company. Um, so then mm-hmm. they gave me another project, did well, moved on to being a, a CEO of a company based in, in California. And then I kind of became like the group CEO of all the SaaS companies. So I was working with the, the CEOs of all the SaaS companies in the portfolio, helping them execute on... You this know, is another private equity firm or something? Exactly. So that's kind okay. of where I learned. Okay. You know, I was yeah. with them for about you know three years or so. 
you know, learned the kind of the playbook of, you know, what's working, what doesn't work. Got to see it across different kind of businesses, you know, do different cross-sell opportunities, you know, upsell how to leverage, you know, different, you know, learn how to do the, you know, proper acquisitions, what are the risks around it. And then two years okay. ago is when I think around I left that group and I decided to focus on launching Horizon Capital. And that's where we really focus okay. on B2B SaaS companies, our expertise. But funny enough, when I started Horizon, the goal was no longer just, you know, focus on cash flow. Yes, we provide, you know, double or triple digit returns to our investors. But, you know, the focus is really just, like I said, empowering entrepreneurship through a different path, right? Having that partner who can really help them scale, take their business to the next level and provide that, you know, financial resources when, when the time is right. Okay, so when you left the other private equity firm, it sounds like you had a, you had pretty good experience. You felt confident that you could, you're essentially were breaking off and doing your own your own version, your own starting your own private equity. How how much capital at that time, and what was your business sort of what was your business plan at that time when you when you left to form Horizon? So when I started Horizon, I knew you know I had, I've built kind of a, a solid at that time you know network of investors. So I think that's kind of your big thing. Is second, I built a track record, right? So from Nine Nine Dollar Social to the other company that I've worked with, you know, I had that track record to, to go back to different investors and new investors and existing investors and say, look, I've done this before you know, here's how we can do it again. And, you know, here's going to be how I'm going to focus on it. The third thing is, you know, I found what I really enjoy. So, I, you know, I, I've done so diff- so many different kind of, uh, you know, models, right, from like, you know, different startups, e-commerce, affiliate, you know, physical business, real estate. I think you have to try and find out what you don't like to be able to find what you really enjoy. And I think at some point you find, look, this is what I really like. This is what I want to focus on and, you know, be able to ignore all the noise around you and just double down on that. So I think having that behind me and having that focus and, and vision is like, look, this is where I found, I learned kind of all the mistakes of, you know, what investments were done, what went wrong, what they were looking at, what didn't work well. And okay, now I said, okay, these are mistakes I learned. And how am I going to apply it now for my own investments to give, you know, returns for myself, for my own partners and my own uh, investors as well. And I brought that to, to Horizon. Okay. And so you started Horizon with just yourself or did you have a co-founder or? So I started by myself and then eventually, you know, I brought on, you know, I, at that time I said, you know, I don't want to work. I've had so many different partners with different projects. I said, look, this is going to be a project I'm going to do being kind of a solo you know, founder at the time. But then eventually, that was my, my decision at the beginning. But then I brought on Pierre as a, as a partner later on. And that was just kind of by pure, I guess, hustle and kind of, I guess he, he earned that spot in a way, right? It, was, it wasn't a thought at the time. You know, he, I kind of brought him on as a project, hired him. I said, I'm going to bring employees on. You know, he was doing some M&A work. He came in to do some kind of financial due diligence and kind of deal sourcing as well. I mean, he just kind of proved his worth. And I said, look, he, you know, he deserved it. And I, I brought him in as a partner. Uh, so now we're, we're, we're okay. two partners right now. And, okay. and everybody else is kind of employees. We're eight people on the team right now. Eight people. Okay, great. And how much, how, how much capital did you, you raise to start your first investments? And, and sort of tell me about that process. And what was your first investment? So typically when we're doing investments, we, don't, we didn't actually raise a fund. So different than a, a traditional fund, they're, they're going to charge fees to investors just for kind of sitting on the capital and hoping that they'll do a deal. We actually do deals uh-huh. on a deal by deal basis. So anytime we have a deal, um, so we'll take the, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll gather all the information, make sure it fits our investment thesis of what we promised to our investors, do our own kind of high level due diligence. Then we'll run it to our investors, say, look, these are the terms of the deal. Typically the, the sticking point of what you're going to find in a conversation, like we're having, you know, maybe five to 10 conversations a week with different founders, it's going to be valuation. Mm-hmm. And I think we, you know, we'll talk about that later, but valuation is going to yeah. be a sticking point. There's always people having higher expectations than what the actual value of their company is worth. So once we know, mm-hmm. we, we stick to that point, which, you know, get to that point of, all right, we're on the same ballpark. We think it's worth this before we get, you know, deeper into due, due diligence. 
mm-hmm. you know, the right growth rate. There's different kind of factors we look at. We'll take it to our investors and we'll say, hey, look, this is the deal we're looking to acquire. This is the amount we were looking to. This is how we structured it. This is the amount we need from equity investors. And this is the date we need kind of the capital committed by. So, And that's kind of how we work from there. In terms of deals, oh. like we did a deal in Brazil, actually. It was a, it was a franchise. Is this one of your first deals? This one, is of, the first one deal. of your first ones? Yeah, yeah. This okay. was kind of the early one. Yeah, that one was, it was a franchising modeling uh like so they basically had a franchise system kind of like digital fra- uh, digital marketers i think it's called in in the u.s digital mo- ryan dice ryan dice ryan exactly dice so they had they, yeah. yeah so they had a similar model but but in brazil and yeah we you know it's, it's been doing really well there you still own it you yeah. still own it still own it yeah yeah okay so what would you what would like so you saw how did first of all how did you find this deal <laughs> so this one specifically is funny so he actually i think he reached out on twitter to somebody else when on, on a case study he, he saw the founder he's been following mm-hmm. kind of my progress with $99 social. He saw what I, what I did. He liked what I did. Mm-hmm. Sorry. And then yeah. he, uh, yeah, he reached out and then he found my email connected with me. And then we kind of went back and forth. So it took about, you know, six months, seven months. We kind of went back and forth. We didn't agree on valuation. And then eventually I think we actually met when I was in Brazil for a couple of weeks and a couple of years ago. And we met, mm-hmm. we went through it, met with the team, actually, you know, figured I'd, I'd take that opportunity. And then we said, okay, look, here's, here's an offer. Like, you know, I think we can try to make a deal here. Things kind of checked out and, and we, we actually moved forward from there. Okay. And like what, uh, sounds like you can't really tell me what, what you invested in that or, or like what kind of, like what kind of money are we talking about? Um, so this one was a slightly smaller one. I think it was under, just under five, half a million. I won't say anything more than that. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Okay. So it's slightly smaller one. Yeah. And so in the, in this one, you're looking to get a certain, you probably minority stake in this one. You so just want to help them grow. Is that this is that one was idea? a full acquisition? Oh, it was. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I can give you another example. So another company we're working with right now is called Postalytics. So they do direct mail marketing. So that's kind of an under, you know, represented or undervalued uh, marketing channel that people don't think about, right? Direct mail, sending actual letters in the, in the mail. So oh, letters. Okay. Yeah. So okay, direct, yeah. right. Like little postcards. So uh-huh. you know, they only work in the U.S. But you know, a lot of marketers don't use that channel. But you know, people are getting a lot of emails. It's just a way to kind of stand out, right? So yeah, kind of nice. Like but, Dan Kennedy style, right? Exactly. Everything. Full on, full on. Yeah, full on old school. Yeah. Exactly. And the nice thing is, you can actually personalize it, right? You can put your name. You can put yeah. your custom link. Put like, hey, Gordy dot call me dot com, right? So yeah. like, ah, oh, nice. This is you know super personalized. Uh-huh. So yeah, I mean that one's kind of a, a growth partnership, a lower lower stake. And yeah, that's that's the one we're probably bigger. I think you know over two million. Uh, but that's the okay. Yeah. And so, would you ever go to like FE International or Micro Acquire and and buy buy deals off of there? Okay, so we did. We used to. Uh, we looked a lot of deals. You know, I know Andrew pretty well from Micro Acquire. I'm actually going to you know have another chat with him tomorrow. Mm-hmm. FE International has good deals. I do recommend them if you're looking at SaaS slightly bigger. The issue I, we have with the brokers is typically you're going to have a lot of competing offers. Um, you know, there's a lot of buyers. Mm-hmm. Andrew, uh, sorry, uh, MicroQuire specifically, I think the quality sometimes because they're a lot smaller, you know, people and the sellers put their own uh, pricing. So that's another issue uh, mm-hmm. there. There's no control on pricing, whereas FE, they're going to do their own kind of study. They're going to do their own analysis and be like, this is the, the valuation and they're going to put it to market. Whereas MicroQuire, mm-hmm. it's probably overpriced from what I've seen. Uh, and the quality probably isn't mm-hmm. there because, you know, you have companies doing $100 a month up to, you know, a million dollars a month. So it's, it's so kind of all over the place and you have to spend a lot more time digging through, whereas I think FE International has, you know, higher, higher kind of quality control. So there's more vetting happening with it. Are there other ones that I didn't mention? Because those, those are the two that I sort of look at. Yeah. The one I like is Quiet Light Brokerage, um, the QLB. Yeah, those I know guys are Yeah. Yeah. So those are probably the top three I would recommend. Empire Flippers, if you like, you know, e-commerce, I think they've gotten more into that space. I think probably a better yeah. one. 
And another thing I don't like is, yeah, so computing offers and you don't, you can't do as much due diligence, I find. So we like to go, you know, a lot more deeper, take our time, maybe run some tests or experiments during due diligence where it's a little harder when, you know, you have like five different offers on a deal and they want to, you know, you're working with brokers, they want to, they want the deal happening in 30 days, you know, and whereas we, you know, we like to spend a little bit more time to, to ask more questions, get talking to the founder uh, and getting more involved before making, you know, pressured decisions. I think that's when you, if you make emotional decisions, that's when you make kind of bad, typically the, the worst mm -hmm. investment decisions. Now, why do you pick 500, 500K as your bottom line? What, why that specifically? So we actually started to move up. And what I find is typically around that stage, I'll say at least a million is probably a better range. And I think it's because that's when, like I said, you have product market fit. And I know if you, people don't understand the term is like, where, you know, there's a real demand for your product. This actually has a potential to scale. And I think just from an overall operational logistics and return perspective, you know, the amount of time you put into acquiring a company and managing it is the same whether it's, you know, half a million to five million. So, you know, if you're thinking mm -hmm. to, if it's your first time doing an acquisition, like if you can do a bigger deal, do a bigger deal because there's more cash around, okay. there's more risk to be made. So let's say you, if you have a million in cash flow versus you have 100K in cash flow a year, you just have a lot more room for error. And it's going to take mm -hmm. you, right? You have, if you're going to be managing this full time, let's say you, we're going to put a manager on this and we're going to pay him. We can pay them better salaries. We can hire better teams. We can, you know, bring on better, you know, VPs of sales at different stages. Mm -hmm. And yeah, you have more room for error. And then secondly, there's more room to kind of invest into growth. So if you can do mm -hmm. a bigger deal, the time is the same, right? You have 40 hours in, a, let's say, or 50 hours, 60 hours you're going to put in this in, into a week. You might as well put it on something that's going to pay higher returns. And, you know, you're going to get a million over, you know, uh, 100K a year. Okay, that makes sense. So let's get into valuations then. How would you, what kind of valuation would you be looking to pay on a something that has a million ARR? So the biggest factor you're going to look at is growth rate, churn, yeah. and LTV. So those three factors are probably going to decide most of your, your valuation. We, we have like a checklist of, you know, maybe a hundred different things we go through, you know, market, what is the market looking like, the industry, the team, how dependent on it, recurring, how much of your revenue is recurring, how much of your mm -hmm. concentration is it dependent on one client? Like we don't like a business where, you know, one client represents 35% or more of your revenue, right? That's a risk that client yeah. leaves, you know, that, yeah. that goes. So a lot of like little things we look at, but yeah, so growth rate is probably one. If you're doing 20% a year, you're flat, 10, 30%, you know, you're probably going to get somewhere, I would say between 2X ARR, up to maybe three and a half, four X, uh, maybe maybe in four X. Okay, if that's if you're growing at twenty percent, which I would consider pretty flat for for a SaaS. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So two and a half, three. Okay, that's that sounds about right. Exactly. Okay, and what would you look for? You don't. So you don't look at profitability or like how much time this founder is spending on you know, something. You don't look at things like that. So, I mean, you do, but that's not one of your top factors. So us personally, so, the, so I guess this is another difference between us between us and VCs is we don't do companies that are burning cash. So if you're Burning capital every month, we're not interested. So typically, you're at least break even, and that we can take it profitable, or you have a, a you know some some strong margins. Some we, profitability, yeah, exactly. Okay. okay, okay. So then, what would you what kind of company are you looking for? Mm. Of because I mean, you sound like you've got some good experience in this. What would you be looking for? Okay, so you're telling me, okay, I'm listening here. I'm a I'm a listener. Okay, a million dollars in ARR. What do I need to spend to get to acquire a company like that, that that would meet your criteria? Okay, maybe I'll give you an example. A company we're actually looking at right now. They're based in in Israel. Can't give the name, obviously, confidentiality. Sure. So they're doing about two and a half million in ARR. 
Mm-hmm. So it meets the, the, the ARR threshold. Mm-hmm. B, they've been around for about, I think, five or six years. So we like companies doing, you know, has been around for at least three years. So you have history and track record. Okay. Three, their churn is about 1.1% per month, which is really wow, nice. It's really good. Yeah, really good, really right? Nice. We like below 5%. So if you're looking at a company, you know, we've worked with companies doing double digit churns. It's it's draining. You're always spinning the wheel and trying to, you know, acquire new customers and yeah. bleeding, you know, that bucket, mm-hmm. the leaky bucket is hard. Third thing is we look at is LTV. Minimum at least, you know, 1500 or two grand is kind of our, our sweet spot. This company is doing, I think, over 10. So, you know, it fits those three. They're, sorry. Can I quickly interject? Why do you need LTV at that long? That's lifetime value for anyone listening. Why do you need, why do you look for this? Is that for paid acquisition? So you can like run Facebook ads? Exactly. So that's one of our, our kind okay. of core strategies is we like to run paid ads. And typically anything below that is hard to kind of justify and get that. You know, probably people understand that CAC to LTV ratio, right? You want to try to get at least maybe a three to one, yeah. right? If you're spending $1,000, you want to get at least 3000 back in revenue. Or yeah, that's, that's the right way. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. So, all right. So, low churn, mm-hmm. less than five percent mm-hmm. over three years. LTV fifteen hundred and above. Mm-hmm. What What other factors? Um, so the other thing we'll look at on this one is the growth rate. So that's the one I mentioned before. So this okay, one yeah. specifically, I think it's doing over sixty or seventy five percent year over year growth. So this is a lot. Okay. It's almost, you know, it's in between. So VCs are going to be typically looking at 100%, um, you know, 10% month mm-hmm. over month is what, you know, they get really excited about that. This yeah. one is not, you know, fast enough that a VC is interested, but it's it's also not, you know, flat flat line enough, you know, for a PE. But for us, we kind of gave this a little bump in valuation because of the growth. Uh, specifically, mm-hmm. where, where we, we made an offer, you know, we're in an agreement right now to pay around, you know, 5x. ARR. So we, we, do, we can move up a little bit when you see that growth rate and, you know, that nice churn. Kind of, it kind of matches all the nice model, uh, all the nice, you know, metrics that we're looking for. So I mm-hmm. think uh, from that perspective, it's, it's looking pretty nice. And we're probably going to offer, yeah, we're, we're close to that 5x ARR now. It sounds like you would have some kind of a spreadsheet where you plug in all the variables and, and it comes up with the valuation. Do you have that as, a, as something that you could give our listeners on your website or anything uh, like that? So we have that internally. It's because it's about 100 kind of different checkpoints. And the thing is, yeah, we actually have a scorecard. We don't have a valuation, but we create a scorecard mm-hmm. based off of that. I, I can ask, let me ask uh, Pierre, see if we can we can give that specifically. Yeah, put it on because we could put in the show notes, anyone that's listening. I'm personally curious myself, you know, of course. Um, as any SaaS owner, would be you know mm-hmm. yeah okay so so that sounds um so 5x is that kind of the top end you would never pay more than that yeah i think over that then you know so vcs were you know they're they're, they're okay paying you know five seven eight ten ten x is generally kind of a, a good thing they're happy to pay that i think we, we don't want to compete on that level and they're probably better off raising with the vc than selling okay yeah. that makes sense yeah. so would you you found that yourself did you go out and sort of source that yourself? Is that like, what, what and what are you using for, for, I mean, obviously you've got, you've got good connections. Everyone knows that you're doing this, but I mean, are you like using outbound approaching people? Is that what you're doing? So this one specifically actually came through inbound. So we do a lot of good, you know, SEO and content. I think they found us through one of our articles, like for example, how to value your SaaS company. So we actually have an article about that. So people search for that. Then they, they fill out mm-hmm. a, a form. We have a lead gen form. They filled it in. And then we're, we're kind of in conversation there. But yeah, uh, we actually have a team, you know, doing full-time outreach. So we're reaching out directly on LinkedIn. So we have, you know, pulling a you know, high-quality list of founders from different databases. And then just reaching out directly on, on LinkedIn 
uh, and seeing if they want to have that conversation. And generally, that's been working. And well. so specifically, the criteria is they need to be doing more than five hundred thousand, less than five million. Is that basically all you care about, or is there other things? Like, are there different verticals that you prefer, or? countries or anything like that uh we like you know north america europe is probably you know if we're in europe we like generally that's where we like a million plus north america half a million but yeah like i said we did a deal in in, in brazil i think as long as you know like we have a company reach out to us based in germany the problem is a lot of their mm-hmm. content and everything and they're doing really well you know two three i think three million arr but all their mm-hmm. content is in, in german so there's really nothing not much you know if we need to put on a manager now there's that extra layer of like okay we got to find somebody who speaks german and there's probably not much we can understand on what's going on here right so okay yeah well, any other reasons why let's say for example like a company in poland there's a lot of great tech in poland yeah good teams there yeah most for the most part they're writing in english because you know nobody's going to their market is they're not really going for the polish market mm-hmm. why would you say that you need someone at a million in poland as opposed to the us no, we're actually talking with a company right now based in Poland. It's funny you say that. They're in the event management space, um, and we're actually about to close a deal with them as well. So that's a growth one. We're actually coming in as like their, their CMO. They, what I love about Poland is they have really, really good product, like exactly that. Like they're probably a nice profile. Mm-hmm. Like they have a solid team of engineers. I think they're about 30 people. They're growing 100% year over year. They're about to raise, you know, finish raising their round. Uh, we're going to come in for a partial amount, and we're going to come in as like, mm-hmm. hey, look, we know the playbook. You haven't done marketing here's the full roadmap we're going to run for you for the next year. This is the budget we're going to run. And this is the results we're going to get. Like we, we line it out, you know, dollar per dollar, everything that they're going to expect. Uh, and this is how it's going to work. And, and they're like, okay, we, we have no idea how to run this, especially going into different countries, right? Especially like a lot of their clients, mm-hmm. I would say they have, country, you know, all over Europe, maybe a lot in Poland, in Japan, but they want to go to, you know, Ireland. They want to go to, to uh, Netherlands, right? They want to expand to different countries or the U.S. I think that's where kind of our, our expertise helps them and, and expanding there. But on, so to be honest, the only reason in in Europe, I think we, we have a really solid connection with it, with a family office we work with, and that's what they generally like. Who they, you know, their financial sponsors, they want at least a million as long as in, in Europe specifically. So that's probably the only reason. Okay. Yeah. So if somebody's trying to purchase something, say for four million, mm-hmm. I mean that's obviously a big ask. If somebody, how would somebody go, go and finance something like that? Yeah, so many different. What are their ways. options? Yeah. So if I'm looking to buy a company for four million, what are ways that I can finance it? Is that, is that your question? Yeah. 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 Exactly. So a couple of ways. People think you always need cash. Cash is not, you know, the only route of, of financing. If you're based in, you know, Canada. U.S. I, I don't know what the, the options are in Europe, but they have similar to like the SBA system in Canada. We have the BDC where you can actually go to a bank and, you know, you can come in for, I think in, in SBA specifically, I think you need 10 or 15% down. So you don't need to come up mm-hmm. with the full 4 million and you can leverage mm-hmm. the rest using debt over and paid over, you know, 10, 15 years. In Canada, I think it's about 20 or 25%. Okay. So you still need a million dollars in equity and the rest can come out of debt and that can be paid over, you know, seven to 10 years. Um, so that's one route. The other route is you can do things like seller financing. So the mm-hmm. seller selling, let's say you want $4 million. Look, I'll, I'll pay you $3 million up front and you're going to finance 25% of that to me and I'll pay it as a note. So I'm actually, you're going to become mm-hmm. the bank and I'm going to pay you that $1 mm-hmm. million over the next three years on a monthly basis. Using cash flow from the recurring revenues. Using cash flow. And what kind of, yeah. To go back on the uh, the 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 notes, what kind of rates are? I mean, obviously there are different rates, but what kind of rates are uh, could could an investor expect to pay using those those vehicles you mentioned? Okay, so an SBA loan, I believe, can't remember. I would say it's under. It's it's definitely in the single digits. So I think you're like somewhere between six to eight percent. 
BDC, okay. I think they're anywhere between like 9 to 11, depending on, on different things. And then I think tip, same thing with a seller note. I think I've typically seen them structured somewhere between like 8 to 10%. So that's typically, okay. you, know, you know, it's kind of nice for a founder to get that guaranteed, you know, a little bit of interest on their cash. Other things yeah. you can do on that is called seller earnout. So that's another way, right? So in this case, let's say you can actually structure it. Look, we're going to pay you 50% up cash. We're going to give you a million and we'll do a million, 25% in earnout and 25% as a debt financing. So you're going to, you know, we're going to pay you every month on this. And then the earnout component, let's say that $1 million, we're going to base that based off future performance. So you're saying mm-hmm. it's growing 40% year over year for the last three years. Fine. Mm-hmm. As long as we see that for the next, let's say, two years, we're going to pay you that mm-hmm. out as long as you know, the numbers match up. Based on our returns, we'll pay you out based on the, as long as it sticks to that. If it drops below that, maybe we adjust that amount. Another thing, mm-hmm. another area where you can see that is, remember that scenario where I said that one client makes up a lot of your, your revenue? Let's say even in the case where it represents 20% of your revenue, maybe mm-hmm. you tie that earn out you know, 20% based on them sticking around. Because sometimes you'll have that founder who has that relationship. Got the relationship, Exactly. Yeah. And as soon as mm-hmm. they leave and they say, hey, I've, I've moved on, I'm on this project, they leave and now you lose that revenue. So like, okay, perfect. Well, we understand the risk. And that's what this game is all about. People think it's, you know, there's a growth opportunity, which is nice. That's your upside for doing the work. But the real mm-hmm. strategy here is really about risk assessment. How do you look at the risk? How do you interpret it? And then what can you do to kind of mitigate it? And in this case, okay, 20% of your revenue is coming from this one client. So we're only going to pay you uh, that, that 20% over the next two years. As long as they stick around, as long as they're paying their contract, no problem. You'll get your payout. So there's d- different ways you can structure okay. it. Yeah. And then the, obviously the final okay. round, the final way you can raise money is through, through external equity investors. So that's what you know, we do. Like we, we have some, some high net worth in individuals, some other entrepreneurs, family offices we work with. Who you, if you have that trust and track record with, you can go to and say, look, we're, we have this company and they're, they're going to p- provide the, the financial backing for you. Okay, and what kind of return could they expect? Uh, let's say I was an investor and says, "Okay, sure, I'll give you you know half a million or something." What kind of return? What, what are the what are the terms that I can respect, or what can I see in return on investment? Sure. So we actually have a, a private kind of uh, SaaS investment club. So if everybody wants to check that out, you can apply for it. Mm-hmm. And typically, you know, you're going to get at least thirty five percent return. So what we do is the first year we don't do any cash distributions, but you know, over the long term, you're going to get about 35, minimum 35% uh, ROI, which is, which is pretty big. So in the first year, we're reinvesting all the cash into growth. And then after you know, year one, two, three, four, is after- 30, 35% per year after, right. after year one. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So you're doubling in like three years or something then. Exactly. Right? Yeah. 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 Okay. That, that is good. And, and, and where can people find that just if they're curious? off of your website yeah so i think if you just put in SaaS or horizon investment club i think a lot of people have searched for investment clubs and they'll find us we're usually on the, okay. on the club page yeah okay perfect mm. how many deals can you run like it sounds like how many deals do you have going right now and how what with eight people i mean that seems like a small team to you know have your fingers in a lot of pies there how do, how do you manage the bandwidth there yeah, so our team, you know, that's just kind of internally. We work with a lot of, you know, agencies and contractors. Kind of that's kind of the bigger part of it. But you know, just internally on okay. Horizon, it's just uh, eight. So when I was at, one thing I learned at Wired is they were doing more volume deals. So I think we did, you know, over twelve deals or so, and you know, within a year and a half. So it was all about, you know, a deal. As long as they met the numbers, you know, there was probably less of a filter, and we were doing a lot more deals, which is good. I mean, that's where you learn a lot. But I think we're also under the fact that we we prefer to do, you know, less deals. Like I'd rather do one or two deals a year. And, and do really, okay. really well 
then you know and, and then you know instead of doing you know a lot more deals so we're we're you know probably doing one a quarter so that could be a combination of whether it's acquisition or just you know partnering in, in growth kind of with with with, with founders so it's, it's in high volume but we actually prefer it that way because we want to we want to make sure we can give the right you know time and attention and we're not really just about you know move fast and break uh, at all at all cost yeah mm-hmm. that makes sense mm-hmm. so so it sounds like if you take over operationally inside your team, that's more for the for sourcing the deals. You then outsource that. You're using cash flow, and you're you've got connections with you know other sort of opera, operations people and development teams or whatever. And then you have sort of outsource that and and then grow that. How many deals have you? How many companies have you sold? Because I my feeling is probably like a life cycle on that or sort of. It'd be maybe be like five years, and then you'd be looking for an exit. Is that sort of your business model? Exactly. So within our own portfolio, we haven't sold any yet, and yeah, we can. We either have a timeline, or if we get the right offer, but we don't think about, you know, uh, we want to sell on a specific date. You know, I think if the the right opportunity comes, we'll 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 talk to the right buyer. We actually actually have yeah. a, an M and A side of our company, and we actually work with a few companies, and this specifically is for founders who are looking for strategic buyers. So there's two reasons we okay. have this side of the business. One is to build these relationships now with all these strategic players. If we decide to, you know, exit in the future, and B, you know, that also helps kind of our, our kind of, you know, building that network and then our cash flow for for helping founders find the right buyer. So when you talked about valuations, you're, you're probably going to get a better valuation if you, you know, sell to a strategic. That's just kind of a part of the game. Just because there's mm-hmm. a lot more synergies, you know, from your client list to, you know, who you're, you're working with, your technology, maybe the team, and it's an acquire. So there's a lot more reasons that maybe they become more interested. So we've done two M&A transactions this year. You know, companies doing a little bit bigger, but, you know, they, they got, you know, uh, generally higher valuation than if they were to sell to, to a financial. Not, and in terms of higher, I'd say closer to like so you, six to eight. Act. Okay. So, and you get a piece of that, that's, you get a piece of that as a broker, essentially. Exactly. Yeah. So it's different than okay. like an FE or a microquire we just listed and anybody comes, no, we build, you know, targeted relationships with people who, you know, who are the, the guys that, you know, the, the big, the big firms or the, or mm-hmm. the big companies. And we, we have relationships with them and make that connection and, and, you know, sell the story, but specifically only with strategics. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. And if somebody is sourcing, would you recommend that people source their own deals? If let's say like I, I just sold my company or I, yeah. I'm looking to get back in the game. Would you recommend that, that I actually go out and source my own deal or is there, or should I come to someone like you or do, or you don't, you don't help with that or should I go to FE or microquire quiet? Yeah. Uh, I mean, brokerage? sourcing deals. One thing I, so I talked to, I don't know if you know, uh, there's one of the bigger PE firms in the software space, their typical sales cycle, I think is about two or three years. I can't remember the exact number for closing a deal. So, you know, I talked to a lot of people who are looking to buy and, you know, you have to realize this is a patience game. It, you know, it's not a sales cycle that takes 30 days or six months or something you're used to. Like if you were to rank on how to do an investment, I'd, I'd kind of break it into three parts. It's better, you know, do a fantastic deal, a level investment. That's probably your first bet. Second thing I would say is don't do anything like do nothing. And third is doing a bad deal. So it's actually better to do nothing than to do a bad mm-hmm. deal. So patience is probably another big thing. But yeah, looking, at, I would say the first thing, look at brokerage deals, you know, look at their IMs that they sent you Their, You know, you mentioned some Empire Flippers, Quiet Light Brokerage, FE International, Microquire. Just look through them. Take your time. Understand the patterns. Look at what they're trading mm-hmm. for, what they're selling for, what are the good and bads. Ask a lot of good questions. Get on the call with founders, why they're selling 
take your time if you don't know or even yeah if you want to chat with us we're happy to to give you some some feedback as well but that's what i would say you know take your time okay. don't rush don't rush the deal it sounds like yeah so it sounds like something getting used to the market you're going to see a lot of deals you get used to what valuations are personally looking at microquire almost always see 10x uh, <laughs> whether or not the founders are, are getting that sounds like they probably are not but but yeah that sounds like good advice so six months kind of getting acquainted with the market which you could maybe even be doing if you're selling your own you could be getting acquainted sort of with the market in anticipation of your own exit well just like i said at the uh, beginning then, about the, the the wall street right like do you want to be the guy just learning about stocks and then competing or do you want to take you know six months to really learn the books you know look at different you know uh, what are the different businesses and companies out there and then fully understand the fundamentals you know different analysis and then before you start you know investing your money right same same kind of thinking yeah yeah Okay. And would you still recommend that people, I guess you could continue and then kind of maybe start approaching people and then see if it happens? Maybe, but would you say, so you think 12 months is sort of a reasonable timeline to find a, you know, a good company, something that meets your criteria, maybe 50% growth, you're getting 3.5x, you know, you, that sounds to me like would be in a sweet spot, like that would be a good deal. Mm-hmm. And Yeah. And if you could find something like that inside of a year, what kind of how quickly would you expect to see your money re- get your money back? So that's going to depend. So that's why growth is super important. And then also, what's kind of your expertise on how fast you can accelerate that growth? If you're just buying it and you're kind of sitting on it and it's being, you know, flat. I mean, let's just use an EBITDA basis. Like if you go back instead of from ARR, you know, this could be anywhere between you know four to six x EBITDA. So if you just use that and it's sticking to the same growth rate, yeah, you get back your money mm-hmm. in, in four to five years probably. So yeah, it's, you know, 20% if you're not doing anything, 20% ROI is, okay. is, not, too, is not unheard of. Okay. Mm. And the banks are would look at that and they would be okay with giving a loan on something like that? So the thing is with banks, what they're going to want and why I think, you know, Canada, US is probably more prevalent, you know, they have to be based in there or you have to be able to move it, uh, their headquarters to one of these locations. So whether it's in Canada or US. And they need to see financial statements. So the problem with the early stage companies is they don't have clean financials from an accountant prepared for the last three years. So those three things are going to be super important for the bank. You've got to show them, you know, firsthand, these are my accountant prepared statements for the last three years. And you have to show that, you know, that, that these are legit numbers before they'll even take a look. And then the second thing is what they'll look at is what's your expertise? What do you know about this industry, about this market? What do you know about SaaS? What do you know about software? What do you know about technology? How, do you, how are you the right person to manage this? And if you can share that story, mm-hmm. if you have a bit of track record, uh, then, then yeah, they'll definitely have that conversation with you. Okay, great. We're getting close to the end of our agreed upon time. So I want to thank you very much for your time. I've enjoyed it. Is there anything you'd like to leave our listeners with? Maybe they're thinking about getting into the game. Um, any other feedback you could give us? I'll mention two small things, maybe kind of side things, more high level. I, you know, SaaS is, you know, invest in something you probably, you know, enjoy doing. I think if you're a first time entrepreneur and you've never done an acquisition, maybe look at a content site. And I'm only saying that because, you know, SaaS is exciting, it's sexy, it's fun. But you also need to understand uh-huh. tech, unless you're a product, you know, person who's worked in, in tech, a content site is probably the easiest one to start off with to kind of get you know, yeah. your hands dirty, to play with, understand the business model, and then move into you know, tech, e-commerce maybe, and then the others. But you know, I love it. I couldn't have it in any other way, but you know, it's not as easy as glamorous that people highlight these days. I actually, it's a lot of work, but I actually love the process. And I think if you don't love the process of building and operating a company and making so many small decisions, every day being so different, you know, managing different personalities, ups and downs, you know, mm-hmm. probably not the best for you. But I, I think it's, it's fun and make the right decisions that you want to do for the next you know, 20 years versus like the next you know, six months or one year. 
Yeah, that's right. And, and content, for a content site, do the rules change? I mean, obviously, maybe the valuations come way down, but yeah. uh, essentially, you're looking at the same sort of numbers in terms of you know, lifetime value and everything like that? It's a little different. You're going to be looking at traffic. You're going to be looking at, you know, cause, you know, email list. You're going to be looking at their, mm-hmm. you know, what is their percentage of, you know, affiliate commissions they're getting, how much mm-hmm. revenue is generated. And it's going to be based on, on cash flow. So it's a lot more cash flow, mm-hmm. which is nice and less about, you know, reinvesting into growth. And mm-hmm. your evaluations, you're looking at, you know, some you can find deals for two, three, maybe three and a half X EBITDA or cash flow, which is okay. a lot nicer, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Great. So, want to thank you so much for your time today, Keel, and we'll uh, definitely will be sending sending uh, people over to your site if they're interested in this topic. And I uh, really enjoyed t- um, speaking with you today. No, thank you so much, Gordy. I appreciate you having me on. Pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Big Break Software Podcast with your host Jordy Wardman. Be sure to click subscribe and check us out on the web. Keep listening and your software big break could be right around the corner.